if he looks away, that's him saying, I need a minute. You're a little quick. And what I can guarantee you is, if you take a breath and exhale, his head will come back. It can only go so far the other way. Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Turrbal country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their ancestors past and present. And I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. This week's show is brought to you by Equitana Australia. Equitana is happening from the 15th to the 18th of November this year in Melbourne. The McDowell's Australian Brumby Challenge was developed by the Victorian Brumby Association. The challenge follows the journey of 20 trainers as they transform untamed Brumbies passively captured from Victoria's high country in 150 days. The final is held across the four days of Equitana, with trainers showcasing the transformation of their Brumby in front of the crowd and an expert panel of judges. Over the four days of the event, you can come along, meet the Brumbies and their trainers, and watch as the Brumbies are taken through their paces in several classes which are designed to showcase the trainer's ability and the trainability and versatility of our Australian Brumbies. You can see this event with your day pass. To get your tickets, go to equitana.com.au. I hope to see you there. Make sure you say hi if you see me. In this episode, I speak with Anna Blake, who is a dressage trainer, author and blogger. Her blog, Relaxed and Forward, has a weekly entry since 2011. That's dedication. So if you like what you hear today, as I know you will, and you want to immerse yourself in what Anna teaches, her blog is a great place to start. She's also written four books and coaches people all over the world in dressage. One of the amazing things Anna brought to the horse world is the awareness of calming signals. These are the signals that we may take as disrespect or disobedience from our horses, when actually it's our horse's way of asking us to calm down please and let's work this out together. I imagine that if everyone in the horse world understood these signals and listened to their horse in this way, then oh my, what a beautiful world it would be for horses. Here is Anna. Anna, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's good to be here, Tracy. Can you first tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? Uh, I am a dressage instructor, and I specialize in uh, communicating through body language. And uh, I use a method called calming signals. It's a a term that was coined in the dog world by Turid Rugas in Norway. I work uh, with clients. I work with a local rescue. I travel and do clinics internationally. And um, I have a little farm on the Colorado prairie that I love. Did you actually grow up with horses? Have they always been a part of your life? Yeah, I grew up on a small dairy farm in another state in Minnesota, and uh, we had horses, although 
in a farm sort of way, meaning I didn't have lessons. I knew that horses had tack because I saw it on TV, but we certainly didn't own any. And um, so I grew up uh, kind of riding what we had at home. Was it just a normal country childhood kid dream of jump on and, and go on an adventure? Uh, it's, I, I, it started a little bit younger than that. I was um, the baby of the family, and we didn't have a babysitter, obviously. And so when everybody was working at something and they needed me out of the way, my parents would put me on top of a, a, a tall gray mare that we had. And <laughs> she, she was in a pen. And no matter how hard I kicked her, she didn't run. And it was too far to jump off of her. And so they would just leave me there on the horse and go. It was, I couldn't have been happier. Wow. Oh, I think we all wish for a babysitter like that. How much fun. Exactly. And um, the, the story about this mare, her name was Lady. I have a half-brother who um, was older than me, and he took her down to bring the cows in. And um, they had a horrible relationship. I remember he came into the house one day covered with blood. She'd actually torn a piece of skin off his shoulder. They were always fighting. And, and I mean, violently fighting. That takes a lot for a horse to take skin off a shoulder. I believe you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was little, of course, I thought I was special because she didn't hurt me. Um, I was just, you know, certain I, I wouldn't have known a term like horse whisperer at that point in time. But, you know, I thought it was just magical that I was somehow, you know, just blessed among all human beings in the world. And, you know, I grew up to know and understand uh, that horses answer us in the exact same language we speak to them. And, you know, the brutal truth is there was nothing special about me or special about my brother uh we she just answered us as we spoke to her and you know that's probably one of the things that i love the most about horses is that they are such individuals with each individual they meet mm, it's a beautiful thing how long did it take you to learn that oh you know into my adult years for sure <laughs> you know I, I mean i think as I, you know i started out like everybody else um, you know, when we first start riding, we don't care where the horse goes, really. Yeah, we're a passenger you know, at best. Yeah, and and who wants any more than that? And you know, once I started trying to steer a horse, um, I this bit of mirroring information that I just said would have been a real help to me then, but I certainly uh, grew to understand horses. Mm. So how did you come to be with horses in your adult life? What was that journey? Um, well, uh, when I left home, I had a horse and I sold her before I left home. I needed her to be safe because I didn't think I was going to be coming back in the near future. And it took a few years before I could afford them in my adult life. I was an artist and um, self-employed and as soon as I could pull it together um, you know I, I bought a horse and of course I bought the wrong horse <laughs> because that's the horse we always buy isn't it we do it's the first one you're drawn to it's like the yep. bad boy when you're a teenager it's like yep. yeah 
that one. Yeah. I've got to be that yeah. one. That one is my yeah. greatest teacher in life. Not that one will give me the easiest life. <laughs> that is my greatest teacher the hard yeah. way. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't looking for a smart purchase. I was looking for an emotional uh, explosion, and that's what I did. And um, I kept that horse for 30 years and uh, the, you know, longest term relationship in my life for sure. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, in my training life just trying to pay him back for uh, everything he taught me. He's kind of my mentor from beyond now. So can you tell me a bit more about that? Where did it start? Where did the lesson uh, really begin? Well, I I bought a weanling that didn't lead, of course. Um, That's handy. And uh, the owner delivered him. I, I had never, I didn't know uh, at that point in my life, you know, I'd always lived in the country and I was living in town. And I found a boarding facility that I thought would be good. And he was delivered to the boarding facility and he was left in a stall and I couldn't catch him in a 12 by 12 stall. Wow. And so, <laughs> and so to, you know, and I so mean, the lessons begin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I stood in there looking at him and I was just totally lost. I thought I had done, you know, I won't say it was regret, but I will say it occurred to me in, in big letters that I had uh, bit off more than I could chew. And so I stood in his stall and uh, said nice things to him. I said affirmations because it was just, you know, it was all I could think of to do. I certainly didn't want to frighten him more than he was. And, um, it, you know, it's funny to look back on it all these years later because it's very much how I train now to, uh, you know, be positive. To where you began, yeah. Yeah, with, with a little more confidence and wisdom. But, you know, I was pretty much without confidence or wisdom back then. So it was good. And, um, you know, I was incredibly lucky. I worked with good trainers. And, um, you know, I think I started like everybody else starts. Uh, you know, I listened to bad advice and thought I had to teach the horse who was boss because that's how my father was with horses. And that's um, how almost everyone was with horses. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, in fairness, I want to say it is our nature too, as yeah. humans, it's who we are. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Um, uh, I think that this is a great time to be involved with animals. I feel like there is so much information. It's uh, so much more compassion and understanding than there was, you know, 50 years ago when I was a kid. And so, um, you know, I'm really grateful for all of the change that I see, you know, with horses in general and dogs and cats and um, you know, we're getting a little better. It's, we're not perfect, but we're on the incline, I believe. Yeah, I believe you too. I completely agree. I think we're slowly waking up. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I'm really lucky because uh, it's it's not that I'm not aware of the reputation that the horse world has, 
but as I travel from clinic to clinic, um, I just meet the very best people. And I feel like, you know, my view of the horse world is slanted, certainly, but um, I just am so optimistic about positive uh, interactions with animals um, and less of the, you know, the old style of training. And so it's, I think it's a pretty exciting time to be alive. Yeah, I agree. So did you end up starting dressage with this one horse of yours? Not initially, no. Um, I grew up riding Western, and so that was certainly how he was started. And uh, we did a few different things, but ended up reining. And um, it was while I was a rainer that I first heard about dressage, and I was excited about it because there were so many levels to it. It was kind of like a martial art, and, and I wanted to do something that involved more communication and more relationship. And, um, you know, Western pleasure was boring, so I went to reining, and then from reining I found dressage. And so uh, I went from a rather large horse show competing at reining to my first dressage barn and was just thrilled about it. What had you grown out of with the raining? What was it that had become boring? Yeah, I love raining, and I I will always love raining. And I what I mean is, um, you know, we in raining patterns there's a prescribed bunch of movements. So there's a large, fast, and a small, slow, and rundowns and spins, and it is spectacular. I love it. And when I saw dressage, there was Piaf and there were tempi changes. And um, you could start at training level and then, you know, go all the way up to the levels to the FEI levels. And I just really, it wasn't that anything about reining went wrong for me. It's that I saw this other thing that was bright and shiny and, <laughs> and I wanted that. Yeah, and it's just got that little bit more in it, doesn't it, dressage? It's it's very, and it's such a beautiful foundation, but it's very finite. It's very subtle. It's very clear. You have to be so clear in what you're asking to get the result. Yeah, I I agree. And I, I feel like, um, you know, it was certainly the foundation of what I did in reigning. I didn't feel like it was a huge change of the language was different different words were used um but the concept of forward was right there um you know it didn't feel really unfamiliar to me uh and i had when i was younger studied martial arts and i kind of you know i think i related to it a lot from a standpoint of martial arts not just that that's what dressage uh was initially, but just that idea of an internal study. Um, you know, it was always more interesting to me than um, a meditative approach was always more interesting to me than, you know, like maybe horse racing uh, can be beautiful and there's a lot of adrenaline and excitement to it. But for me personally, I like that internal ride better. Yeah, there's not many shades there. Yeah, I'm, I hear what you're saying. So 
When you were doing reining and when you were then transitioned to dressage, when is it that you started to really listen to your horse? Who was the horse that made you listen and change the way you were with them? Around that time, I had two horses. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, um, I'm a little type A. And that first horse, um, he taught me a lot because he didn't really appreciate me being type A. I always say um, that it's really easy to go up the dressage levels. You just have to change everything about yourself to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he he put me in a better frame of mind for riding. And uh, then the second horse I had after he... Uh, I I competed them both at the same time, but the second horse, um, you know, he did a lot better. And frankly, he did a lot better because the first horse taught me how to do it. So, you know, I feel like I I give a lot of credit to that first horse because, um, you know, the ones that came after him uh, got a lot more compliments than he and I ever got. And uh, those compliments all belong to him, not not me and these other horses, you know, were able to try hard and do well uh, because I was listening better by then. How did he teach you how to listen? <laughs> oh, well, you know, by sticking his pull-up tents in the air and going hollow. Uh, <laughs> he he liked to let everyone watching know that my hands weren't all they could be. Um <laughs> He uh, he had lots of strong opinions. One of my favorite things that he ever did, um, he had a tendency sometimes to be a little slow. And he felt like, you know, when I when I would ask him to move on, he always felt like that was kind of a fair cue and he would do it. And one time I asked for a canter, but I my canter foot was just a little bit loud. And he managed to kick me in the arch. Oh. Of, the, of the foot that cued him, That's which clever. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I believed it was his way of saying, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not stupid. Um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you're right. I, I messed those cues up. I'm wrong. And, you know, he was just really present and communicative with me. And he had, um, You know, he had a lot of energy and a lot of liveliness, and I think he had um, a great sense of humor, and I think it's important to think all horses have a sense of humor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and how great is it that um, you weren't at the stage where when he gave you that very clear message that you didn't then, you know, show him who's boss, you're able to listen. I love it. I love it when people are able to hear and just go, okay. That was a quite a big response. What on earth are you trying to tell me here? Well, and again, I had a great trainer at that time. And um, I was, you know, uh, I came off a lot. Uh, I think the first year I was on him, I maybe came off three times. And so uh, I was predisposed to go slow and listen because, um, you know, I had to work for a living and I couldn't afford more time off. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, I think um, as I travel and I listen to people talk about, you know, their, their first horse or the special horse in their lives, I feel like the stories are all beautiful and they're all the same. 
And the story is always, uh, it was a disaster in the beginning. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, uh, it was just, um, I was just so blessed. I was so blessed, you know, to get to have these horses and to be able to focus enough time for both of them that I could really learn what I wanted to learn. Um, you know, I took lots of riding lessons. I clinicked with everyone who came through. I scribed for judges. Um, I was involved in my local dressage club. I, you know, I was a fanatic student, just fanatic. And I was really fortunate to be able to um, arrange my life in such a way that I could do that. Now, I believe when I was reading your book, your first book, who was the horse where you had organized a local dressage day and the judge that had come out was quite a high-level judge and they were not very kind? I think the judge was having a very bad day. Yeah, as we all do. And you guys just happened to get their bad day. Yeah, I, and you know, I, I guess I want to say that was not my overall experience with dressage and with competing at dressage, but that was a particularly challenging day. And um, But your horse's response to it was quite fantastic. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. <laughs> this is the horse I was riding that day was my, my second horse, Dodger. And um, he was a horse that had, as opposed to the first horse who was a little more, uh, didn't have all the confidence in the world, Dodger did. And so the most remarkable thing to me about riding him is that whenever I entered the arena and halted at X and saluted the judge, I would feel my legs on his flank. He would take a huge breath and I would just feel my legs rise as he inhaled. Mm -hmm. And he was just, he just loved competing. And uh, it was a horrible day and everything that could go wrong had gone wrong and people were complaining and people were leaving early and scratching their rides. And one of my friends had gotten in a lot of trouble, had been disqualified by the, it was just a horrible day. And um, I just don't have it in me. I just can't pull it together. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I walk in the arena and I think maybe I'll dismount and maybe I'll protest and maybe, you know. And so I park at X and I feel his flanks come up underneath my legs. And it is as if I hear a little voice in my head that says, let's go. Wow. And and I thought, OK, you know, I don't have it in me. You do it. And it was just a fabulous ride. And he was such a, um, he just had such a sense of pride. Uh, it's a blessing and a curse. I felt like, you know, initially when he was a young horse, I had to work pretty hard to keep up with him just mentally. You know, mm. he, I didn't always think I was good enough to ride him. And, um, and he didn't suffer fools, so I had to figure that out. And, um, you know, again, the first couple of years I showed him, I think we had a runaway in every test we did. 
<laughs> we were just a disaster. And um, we just got better and better and better. And, you know, I think the the most valuable thing about riding horses is to stick with it long enough um, for that change to come. Yeah, uh, it takes and, a long time. Well, it does. And, you know, the notion, uh, one of the things that's pretty popular here in the States, um, and, and I'm not wild about them, but there are training competitions where it will be a 60-day challenge to start young horses or rescue horses or Mustangs or whatever. And, um, you know, I just I just think it takes a long time to build a horse, and I hate to hear about training going fast because, you know, it's, it's, it's not how they learn. Yeah. And it's, it takes time to build that relationship. And in the dressage world, especially, they don't feel horses come of age until they're, they're 10 or 11. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I did a masterclass here a while ago and um, I watched one up here in Queensland and that's what they said. And I have, you know, dressage gets a bad rap and sometimes for all the right reasons, but there are people coming through now like yourself and there are some people at the top of their game who just are at another level and it's beautiful to watch. It's a real partnership. It's a real communication and the horses love what they do and they understand that the horses are going to take that such a long time to mature to be able to even um, have the body awareness and the capability to do some of those moves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think starting horses when they're four or five even and just really giving them time with the fundamentals. It just makes the biggest difference in the world. I think it's, um, you know, I think I'd like to see reining look to horses in this way too, um, and all disciplines. Uh, we, we start them way too young and push them way too fast, and then we pay a price for it. Yeah. And, um, y- you know, you're right. In dressage, I, I you know, I agree with you there are bad things about dressage and uh, it's much easier to point and blame than it is to praise what's good. Um, There's a lot bad going on in all disciplines, but I'm sure not going to turn my, my discipline that I love so much over to the haters and quit being involved in it because uh Roll Kerr exists. I'm going to you know, I'm gonna praise the highest and best whenever I see it. And um you know, there there's enough written about dressage down over the centuries that uh it's not hard to check on what it is. And even, you know, if you did nothing more, I I'm not sure uh you know, how competition works uh, in Australia. Um, We have, uh, you know, a series of tests set at all of the levels of dressage. And at the beginning of the tests, there are directives, and the directives just tell you what you should be, what the judge would be looking for, what you should be looking for in your horse. And if you never competed, if you just rode to those directives, 
it would be like, um, you know, a magic pathway to a supple, happy, strong horse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, dressage is one of those disciplines that benefits all ages for young horses. It gives them, um, you know, a focus and a balance. And for midlife horses, it keeps them strong. And then my favorite thing about dressage is old horses. It gives them suppleness. And that adds up to longevity. And since we're humans and it's going to take us forever to figure out how to ride horses, uh, it would be good if they lived a long time and gave us a chance to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. And I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. So for one sec, let's go back to that dressage test or that dressage day. And you heard the let's go and you had a beautiful ride. How was it when you finished? You know, it was my second ride of the day, and the first ride um, got a bad score, and so did this one. Uh, it got a really bad score. And uh, the gate person um, cheered, and people who were sitting in the stands cheered. And, and you know, it was a great experience for me because, and boy, I I believe this so profoundly. Uh, people love to hate competition, and that's okay. You don't have to compete. But the thing that I will say is if you allow the opinion of one person who watches you for five minutes to destroy the relationship you have with your horse, well, then you don't have much to start with. And so, you know, I felt that colliding of thought. And, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I laughed. I cried. You know, it was that famous Dickens quote. And uh, I think he was talking about horses. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think it was all about horses when he said that. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest questions people ask me all the time is about peer pressure. And I think it's really hard you know, to have the confidence to stand uh, for, up for your horse and your ride, even on a bad day. Um, and I just have such, you know, that's always what I want to do. I want to um, just recognize it as a point in time. Everything, you know, everything changes. Yeah, it does. And it is really important, I think, the more time I spend with horses, the more time I speak to people like yourself, it's really important that we are the, our horse's voice and that we are able to say, okay, this is what's happening now. Even with people that are more experienced than us, if we're out competing, all of the things that are happening, we need to be able to just speak up. And it can be done in a gentle way, but I, I think it's really important and I know people who do it and I think it makes a really positive change in the horse world I do too and you know I mean I think it is really good to have another set of eyes watch and whether that's a judge or um, a friend who understands what you're working on or a coach that you work with um, I I you know, I think another opinion is really valuable. We shouldn't take things so personally. And then, of course, we take things personally. It's the biggest passion in our lives. None of us 
are, you know, so-so about horses. Yeah. Um, it matters a lot to us. I think the notion where I always land with it in the work that I do and my clients that I work with, um, you know, I'm always going to put the horse first. Yeah. And I, I think it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Um, well, you know, I think it's a lot harder than it. I think it sounds simpler than it is. I agree with um, you 100% because when they speak up and they speak loud, it's very hard to then respect that. It's very hard when people above you are speaking up and, and you have to say, and, and you have to hold a boundary for your horse. It's a hell of a lot harder than it is to do, to physically do, oh, yeah. it is to think about. Yeah, and it is, it, and it's constant. Um, it's with vets, it's with farriers. And that, I'm not implying that they're, that they're bad, you know, that they don't care about the horse, that they're any of those things. But, um, I, you know, I always introduce myself as a horse advocate. And everybody agrees that they're a horse advocate. But, you know, when it really comes down to um, it might be time to retire your horse. It might be time, uh, you know, to make a big change that's inconvenient for you. You know, everybody's a horse advocate until it becomes inconvenient. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And and. Because we put so much time and so much effort and so much money into them, and then all of a sudden it has to change. So there's a lot of process that has to go on in the human for them to be able to go, okay, I need to accept this and I need to move on. It's a challenge. They are so challenging horses in every way. Uh-huh, exactly. And, you know, there are a couple of things to hate about horses. Um you can hate their feet and their digestive systems. I think that's fair. <laughs> uh, mo most of all, I hate it that they don't live long enough. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that's how they get in trouble with training. Uh, you know, we were talking about starting them at four. Um, boy, you know, a competition horse of mo most breeds is going to be done you know, past his prime by maybe 17 or 18. Mm. Um, you know, that's a short window. And we just wish it was longer. And so we start him sooner and we probably push him harder than we we should. It's hard to just say, you know, this is a, this is a brief yeah, it's a short amount of time. When we look at the amount of time that we live for, when we look at the amount of time that we ride for, it really is. It's a blink. It's a moment in time. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, with this horse that you're talking about, the first horse that I wrote about in the book, I refer to him in the book as my grandfather horse. And uh, he retired at 17 and lived to be 30. And he had a lot of, uh, you know, lameness issues uh and so i retired him and um i feel like he taught me more during retirement than all the time that i rode him and you know i think um for a lot of people well you know i'm a big fan of keeping old horses because there is so much to learn from them as time goes on and i just uh you know 
the writing part was great. And um, I've learned to appreciate so many other bigger things. And I, you know, I owe that to him too. Yeah. And they do teach us so much to slow down and be in the moment. That's what I love about them so much is that when you're there, it's like you've got all these ideas in your head and you're always thinking forward and they're just like, hey, feel the breeze. Hey. <laughs> it's lovely. And it's like, ah, yes, okay, let's yeah. just do that for a while. Let's just center ourselves. Let's just be. It's very hard for us humans to be. Yeah, and that's what, you know, I mean, maybe we learn it with retired horses so that our next riding horse we can put it to work in the saddle. Because, yeah, I think as we, you know, as we begin riding either a new horse or a young horse, everything that comes up seems like a problem. You know, you've got a problem with that trot transition and you've got a problem you can't get them to canter and you've got a problem to the right. And and then, you know, they're old campaigners and you look back on the years you've spent together and it was never a problem. It was just another step. And I think, you know, in hindsight is when we learn to relax. Um, I don't know that we're capable of doing it in the moment. We're just humans. We're not perfect. Yeah. And that's a really important point because when you have your lessons your writing lessons, you're there and yes, you, you get told, yes, this is good. I can see you've developed that, but it is also about growth and development. So you are looking for what's the next stage of growth for you. You're looking for, okay, well, this is a little bit down now and let's look into this. So it, it can feel a lot like you're always chasing perfection. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, dressage in particular, uh, these days, the scores get up pretty high. But, you know, when I was coming up in dressage, nobody really got over a 75 out of 100%. So, you know, we were all at a C average. <laughs> yeah. And 70s are even good these days. Oh, wow, God, yeah. I mean, I'd be thrilled. Great. And you know what I mean? In competition, we're seeing some horses get 80s and lower yeah, 90s. Wow. And, um yeah. And, you know, truly, they do kind of almost look that good, too. But, yeah, I yeah. think um, there's an aspect of riding just because we love it so much. Um, it's hard to not be – it's hard for a rider to not be hard on themselves. Mm. And I always feel like it's my job as a, as a trainer when I'm working with clients that, um, you know, get consistent lessons from me. Part of my job is uh, to see the big picture – and the big picture may be, uh, you know, he's having an off day because of this. Uh, he just had his feet done. Um, the big picture could be take a take a breath because a year ago you couldn't ride him off the lunge line. And yeah, that's a really important one. Oh, it's so important to to always hearken back. I think. Um, because, um, you know, we achieve one thing and we're on to the next thing. And, um, you know, being a little grateful in the saddle makes a horse a lot happier to be around. And, I, you know, I have a real strong belief that horses like us when we're happy. And so I want to stay really lighthearted in my lessons. If I can't get 
the rider to relax and if I can't get the horse to relax then nothing good's gonna happen there won't be any positive learning that happens and mm -hmm. so you know this notion of having a sense of humor around horses I think it's really important yeah absolutely it's like children that sense of wonder and and amazement and and everything can be fun it's just how you choose to see it yeah yeah exactly I have a new horse here in my barn a client's horse and it's a young uh draft thoroughbred cross and he's about the most serious young horse I've ever met in my life. He keeps a furrowed brow constantly. <laughs> and so, and he doesn't, and obviously he doesn't have much confidence. And so we've set about um, encouraging him to have a sense of humor. And it has been the most fun training uh, working with this young horse. It's just been so much fun. And now he thinks the mounting block is fun. And um, he's curious and he's adventurous. And uh, um, when he came to us, he worked behind the bit pretty seriously. And now he moves happily with his nose, you know, a little bit out from vertical. And so, you know, I'm just thrilled with him because I think, you know, the body language that a horse shows us has as much to do with their emotions as our body language has to do with ours. And, yeah. um, you know, we, I, I don't know, I, I don't know that there's anything more important to teach a horse than confidence. Yes, and a human. Yeah. Even when I'm having my riding lessons and my, my instructor says, rise with confidence, everything changes. Yep. Everything changes. And I'm like, oh, that, that's my word. That's something I need to think about. And, and the horse changes underneath me. So how did you bring fun and a sense of humor to a horse. Can you give me an example? Well, you know, first off, I laugh all the time. Uh, I always have music playing, and it's pretty silly music. Uh, um, when he looks worried, I go slow. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, if he... If I can tell he's thinking about doing it, I can see it in his eye. He's going slow and he's thinking about it. I'll be really enthusiastic with him because I want to reward him for thinking. Um, yeah. I don't believe in escalating cues. And so, uh, you know, I've been last week I was working on him picking me up at the mounting block. And so this is me standing on the mounting block and, he comes and and I just ask him for one step and then I tell him how incredibly good he is and he just accidentally lands in the right spot. But <laughs> horses learn in hindsight. That's how they learn. Yeah. And uh, I am controversial in some circles because I don't use treats and what I always say is I want to be the treat. Mm. And so he lands in the right place. And literally, I don't think for less than 15 minutes, I stood there and scratched him, praised yeah. him, sang songs, you know, and really let him know it was exactly what I wanted him to do. And he licked and he chewed, and then I gave him time to understand that. And um, some of it is as simple as being cheerful in my body. I might, you know, 
I don't walk with my head down. I walk with my chest out and I breathe all the time. And if I feel like he's not breathing, I'll exhale so he can hear me exhale. And, you know, it's a, I, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, I want to say in a sense, it's maybe like you told me that you have kids. And so I assume that you read to your kids. Yes. And there are ways of reading to your kids and there are ways of reading to your kids. And some methods encourage children to love books and want to read. And I think it's like that. I think it's the energy that we put into it sometimes more than the technique we use. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. It's a very thing. It's a thing we're very passionate about in our household is reading to children. And you can tell the nights where we've just got nothing left because we just <laughs> read the words on a page. And you can tell the nights where we've got a lot left and we get excited about books and we have its whole conversation and we have something wonderful going on. But yes, I get the difference. And what I love about what it is that you're saying with horses is that you're teaching by being. You're literally using your body as the example of how to be relaxed and joyful and and they can learn that way. So they well, don't have to try and figure it out themselves. They can see it in you. Well, and that's, that is their language. Um, you know, it's not that I can't say canter and they'll canter, but they're not English speakers and they're not verbal. And so, you know, I study and teach calming signals, which is how... Uh, how animals communicate. Um, and, you know, we have to put it in our bodies. That's where, it, you know, that's the only place it is. Um, I can't explain it to them longhand. And so I think that that enthusiasm, I mean, I think it takes a lot of focus to stay enthusiastic. Yes. Uh, you know, with kids, with horses, um, you know, the thing I like to liken it to, because I've had some rescue dogs that didn't have a great recall. And uh, I have a neighbor across the road who just yells in a rage at her dog when it won't come. And I just smile because there's no way I would go either. And yeah. <laughs> this is like, you know, honey, use some common sense here. And I remember when I was learning about training dogs that notion that you had to be cheerful when they came back, no matter how long it took them to come back. And um, I just love that. And, mm. you know, I think it's a great skill for parents and I think it's a great skill for horse trainers too. Yeah. And the, the best part about all of those things and what all of the animals and the children uh, require of us is presence. Mm -hmm. You can't be with them and be joyful and be thinking about your list of things to do. Yeah. Yeah, they really bring you back to that place. Yeah, and it's always amazing to me how easily we let that go. I mean, for me, as I was progressing as a rider, you know, there's this moment I would be standing at the top of the mounting block preparing to get on my horse, and um, I really wanted to let go of the drama in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I was never the rider who would climb on and complain about uh, bills or something. But um, I would just always feel this glee kind of as my foot left the mounting block that everything bad was would be right there when I got back. But, you know, I wouldn't take it into the saddle with me. And um, 
you know, I think making that decision for me really, really changed everything about being with horses. Uh, I, you know, I am not immune to those people who name call their horses and, you know, blame their horses for bad rides and, and stuff like that. Um, it's just always been so easy to me to want to lay it down. Uh, yeah. I don't, I, I'm not quite sure, you know, the advantage of sitting on a horse and complaining, but it seems to be a popular pastime. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We take it all with us everywhere. And it's part of our device world as well. We carry it all with us all the time. <laughs> everything comes with us. Our emails, our connectivity, everything comes with us. It's um, it's a wonderful thing and it's a big shame all at the same time. It's the paradox of life, I think. Yeah, it is. But, you know, again, uh, you know, you're the one riding it. And yep. I'm, you get choice in every moment. Yeah. And um, for me, uh, you know, I live on a very small farm out on the prairie of Colorado. And because of technology, not just are you and I talking, but, um, you know, the entire world comes here because of technology. It's, it, you know, we can use it for whatever we want. And um, I have a blog and people read it and follow it. And the comments on the blog are really positive all the time. I think my readers are just, I'm so grateful for them. I think they're just the best. And so, you know, you can use it, um, you know, for the forces of good. <laughs> yes, it is a tool. It is a tool. I like horses. They're, a, they're not a tool, they're an emotive and, and part of our family, but they're also a way for us to be different in the world. We get to choose every time how it is we want to be, and technology is the same way. Yeah, It's another thing that we get to utilize in our life in some way, and it can be a gift or it can be a curse, and we get to choose either way. Yeah. We do have control. Yeah, we do. And I, you know, I when I uh, got my first cell phone, um, I looked at it and I felt overwhelmed and I, you know, walked out to the barn because it was the beginning of the day thinking, how can I use this thing? And I thought, well, you know, how about I just ride it? How about I don't get bucked off? And if I get bucked off, I climb back on. And how about I take it up the levels? <laughs> and so, you know, I applied dressage principles to technology and it worked really well for me. <laughs> I'm an upper level cell phone user now. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank, thank you so much. <laughs> now, there's a couple of things you said before, and I don't want to sweep right past them because they're really important. One of them was that you don't, what was, what was it about cues? You don't advance your cues. You don't make your cues louder for the horse. Can you talk to that a bit more? Yeah. Well, I think some of us traditionally have been taught, I think the words are ask, tell, make. Yes. That, yeah, that we should escalate the cues. Yes. And I think as humans, we're really good at doing that because it is our nature to do that anyway. If we don't think we're heard, you know, we talk louder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I heard it while I was taking lessons. Um, but I want to say a lot of what I know as a trainer has been really impacted uh, in my 
in my training methods by standing on the ground and watching. Mm. And so, and I'm, I'm going to, not in an anthropomorphic way, but I'm going to speak as if I am the horse now just for the purposes of explaining this mm -hmm. without seeing each other. So I'm the horse and um, I and we're walking. And I think you just gave me a cue to trot. I think you did. Oh, crap. That's the second cue. And then on the third cue, what I see the horse do is flinch his ribs. And so we tend, it looks to me from the ground. We ask. And in this process of asking, uh, the cue goes uh, through my body to his body. The idea goes to his brain and then he reacts to the idea and generally speaking we've already cued him twice by the time that's happened mm -hmm. and so what we end up doing is correcting him for thinking because he's living in the moment and he's thinking about doing it and we correct him and so Boy, in, and we break in that my, thought. He's in mid thought. He's about to think about doing it. He's processing it all, and we come in and cut that off. It's almost as if I were to have shouted, "Shut up!" in the middle of your last sentence. Mm. And I think it's that jarring half the time. Um, and besides that, kicking them harder, all that does is tense up their ribs, which is about the last thing we want a horse to do anyway. Yeah. Um, can they learn to respond to it? Some of them can. Some of them shut down. Some of them blow up. But again, I want this process of choice to be something, you know, if my horse is thinking, boy, I want to let him think. Mm. And speeding up anything is easy. Uh, you know, when you watch rainers spin, it's, spin their horses. Um you know, it's just very, very, very dramatic uh, movement. But that is certainly not how it starts. Yeah. It starts a tiny step at a time and a reward after every step and building on that. And, you know, we need to give the horse time to understand what we're asking and then time to respond. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, I tend to be pretty slow. Um, when I'm introducing something new and I really, uh, you know, I want the horse to have kind of a dopamine response in his mind, that neurochemical that says, Oh, I get it, you know, lick and chew. Um, I just want him thinking I'm not responding out of fear Yeah. and fear of the next cue. And, you know, again, uh, some people do this differently than others, and I'm not going to say that everybody who does it is just horrible. Um, I will tell you that if you're looking for a response that is happy and cheerful and quick, um, it's going to come through positive work, not punishment. Yeah. Puni yeah, punishment destroys trust. You know, it just does. Um if a horse has to sit around and wonder if he's going to get hurt, uh, his confidence isn't going to be bold. 
Yeah. And you want a calm, confident horse. It's what we all want. And this is the thing that, that, that I love about this podcast because in the horse world, I truly believe that most people love their horses no matter what methods they're using. And most people want a calm and confident horse. We all actually want the same thing. We're just all going about it in very different ways. Yeah, and it and at different speeds and some horses are rescue horses and they have a history and some horses are green. I mean, you know, one of the things that I just love about my job is especially at a clinic where I'll have a a, a group of people in the in a day um or over the course of a weekend and you know, for me it's a really fun almost like an adrenaline sport to meet the horse, meet the rider, try and perceive um, how I can help them, uh, what I think the priority should be for that day. Um, you know, I I just love it. Yeah. It's I, I can't think of anything more fun to do. Um, and, and, you know, it involves, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think we are all looking for the same thing. And I think sometimes the biggest thing that hampers us, I don't think this sometimes, I think this all the time. I think that there's a trust issue and it's ours. <laughs> and it isn't that we don't trust that they won't hurt us. That's not it at all. We don't trust that they would do it. We don't trust their intelligence. We don't think we can ask and they'll do it we think we have to ask and then ask and then ask and force. And, you know, the notion that a horse would do it of his own volition, that's what we don't trust. Yeah. And we need to work on that because they're much more intelligent than we give them credit for. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I have said a lot. I think they've just been waiting oh so patiently for us to start listening a bit more because they've got so much to teach us. <laughs> God, they're such great teachers. <laughs> yeah, I think that some of them, I think some of them think we are not an intelligent species and we never will be. But I think some horses think we might even have souls. <laughs> I think that they are waiting. I, I, I am skeptical that we domesticated horses. I don't believe it. I think that they are domesticating us. I hope so. I really hope so because we would do so well as a race to live a lot more the way they do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about that I didn't want to skip over was calming techniques that you talked about. I think that was a word you used and how that is their language. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, and I'll give you just um, the beginning idea yes, of it. Right. Um, so I walk up to a horse to halter him or put his bridle on, and he turns his head away. And so naturally, I grab his face and pull it back and slam the halter mm -hmm. on. <laughs> and I'm being sarcastic because a calming signal is a signal that a horse gives a human because we're loud and aggressive. Mm, even just the way that we've walked up and held out the halter can be a yell to a horse, even though we haven't spoken a word. If he looks away, 
that's him saying, I need a minute. Yeah. You're a little quick. Um, and what I can guarantee you is, you know, if you take a breath and exhale, uh, his head will come back. It can only go so far the other way. Um, uh, one of the things that horses do that's a calming signal is they'll stretch down uh, and rub their nose on their foreleg. And I think we've all seen this. Mm. And again, while we're riding and we have been taught to jerk their head up and put them, you know, they're being disobedient. They're ignoring you. Um, a horse can't ignore us. They're prey animals. They are constantly aware of their surroundings. They couldn't ignore a human standing next to them if their lives depended on it. Um, a lot of times a horse will put his head down and stretch his neck and sometimes even graze when he's not hungry. And he does it in a multidimensional way. Uh, that neck stretch is going to relax him some. He's also mentoring a behavior he'd like to see us do, meaning I'm no threat to you. Relax. Um, a lot of times you'll see a horse do that at the edge of the trailer, and they do it right before they get in. Um, they're just going to take a moment, pull themselves together, and then do the task. But if we kind of like the accelerating cues that we were talking about a few minutes ago, if we jump all over them when they give us a calming signal, which frankly is what most of us were trained to do, um, again, uh, that's going to create stress for the horse. Some horses will shut down. Some horses will overreact. Um, but again, they're just saying, take a little, take a moment. The, you know, the classic time that we see this and understand it and get behind it is with foals. They do a champing movement with their mouths. Mm. So they're standing next to the mare and a gelding comes into the pen and the baby will make that champing sound saying to the gelding, I am no threat to you. And the gelding will walk on past. So we see it within the herd. Um, but again, that's how they communicate. So they communicate with us that way too. If we get our heads around it as a form of communication um, that we can participate in, well, then everything gets easier. It's fantastic. So, and so, Tracy, you and I are standing in the same room. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't know each other, but I've got a smile on my face. My body's pretty relaxed. And I walk up to you, not incredibly quickly, but not slowly. I walk up to you and I stop about two inches from your nose. <laughs> and then you pat my face. <laughs> Yeah, and so your first response was to laugh. Yes. That's a calming signal that humans use. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and exactly. It's um I, I love to use humans as demo horses when I talk about calming signals because we're the exact same way. Yeah. My body I mean, just went all tense. I'm, my shoulders were up around my ears, yeah. my whole chest tightened <laughs> up. I just completely in my yeah. chair from the other side of the world became very uncomfortable very fast. <laughs> Just at the idea of that, like you're not even in the room, but just at the idea of I that. Know. So imagine I what know. horses this, feel. 
And yeah, and how we use space around a horse is so crucial for exactly, exactly that reason too. And so I just think calming signals, you know, it's, um, it's a worthy thing to learn. And so I've been traveling now for the last couple of years doing uh, clinics about calming signals. And um, it's a strange clinic because we stand around and listen to horses. And what I can tell you is, especially for stoic horses that um, have been keeping a lot in, once they start talking, they are just chatterboxes. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes blah, 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 blah. And um, it's just been uh, such a treat to um, see people and horses click in this different Simil it's it's nothing new it's nothing new it, it's just perceiving it with a different set of words and that gives us more a different place that we can evolve to from there is what i want to say and um i'm just a huge believer so the term calming signals was coined uh, i think in the early 2000s by turid rugas who is a dog trainer mm. Norwegian dog trainer and she has a, a small book out that I really recommend and um, she's uh, you know I started writing about calming signals about three years ago and I got an email with her name in the subject line and I thought oh my I, I bet I'm in trouble and <laughs> oh ooh, I bet I'm bad and um, she emailed me and she's she said, thank you so much. I grew up on a horse farm and it is very similar. And in the years since then, um, a student of hers has published a book on calming signals as well. I could give you the links to both of those Definitely. books. Definitely. pop them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. After the podcast. And so now there's a book. Uh, it's got a lot of photographs. It's very well researched and well written. And, um, you know, it just gives us an opportunity to deepen our understanding. And I think uh, for most of us who are passionate about horses, um, it's I don't know that I look to learn something I've never heard before, because frankly, I've studied this my whole life. What I always hope is that I'll uh, hear somebody talking about a concept, but they'll use a different set of words and maybe those new words with my previous understanding might deepen into a more profound understanding. I think that that's what we can hope for as horse people going forward is to just, you know, continue to deepen our understanding of horses. Mm -hmm. And so I just find this to be, you know, this was a huge door for me. Um, and, the anecdotal story about how it came to pass. Um, when I was 45, I had a midlife crisis and I, within a month, dumped my life and moved with two horses and two dogs to a little farm. And once I got there, I realized, um, you know, more animals came to live with us and I was lonely because there were no people around. And I realized that there were a lot of conversations going on that I was not included in. And so it was almost like, a, you know, being on a deserted island with them or something. I 
I watched more closely. I listened more closely. I felt like I had a deeper understanding of what they were communicating to each other. And then I found this book. And it so resonated with my last two years before that of, you know, living kind of alone with the animals. And, um, you know, not many of us have the opportunity or inclination (laughs) to be isolated with our animals. But, um, you know, this book just speaks to everything I thought I saw. It just resonated with me so deeply. And you wrote a book about, is it the stable relation about that time? Yeah, it's a memoir of moving to this farm. Mm. Uh, It talks a little about the farm I grew up on and uh, this farm um, and how I got from one to the other. Mm, It's a beautiful book. It's beautifully written. It's, um, I tell you, when that snowstorm came through, I was right there with you. (laughs) I'm in sunny Queensland, Australia, where it couldn't snow if it dried. But um, I tell you, when you wrote about that snowstorm, I was, I was completely there, and my heart was opened when you brought the people from the home there and just brought your animals around to just say hello to people from a from, was it yeah. from a nursing home. Yeah, it's a yeah. beautifully written yeah. book. I highly recommend it. It's one of those page turners that you can do in a short amount of time and it's um it's just lovely. And there's Thank you. all animals are included in this one, so it's lovely to hear about them all. Yeah. And everything it, it, taught I, you. Thank you. Um uh I think one of the things that's different about me than a lot of trainers or clinicians is that I write. And so this book, you're talking about stable relation. Um, I knew for years I wanted to write it, but I wasn't a good enough writer. And so I started blogging. And when I started blogging, nobody read my blog. And um, uh, probably like you, I read a lot of articles. I read reports from vet schools about laminitis and I read other people's blogs and I read articles about uh, training and they bore me and I fall asleep when I read them and I decided I made a commitment that I had to write really well or else why bother yeah you know why bother and so um I started writing the blog, and uh, it's eight years old. I published twice a week. I wrote the book when I was about five years into the blog and finally thought I was a good enough writer. I would give myself assignments, not unlike a writing lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so, And I just really schooled it. And, and again, I think I learned to write the same way I learned to ride. Mm. Um, you know, by getting my ego out of the way and by, uh, you know, practicing, you know, trying to do it right and trying to stay positive. And um, thank you. That book means a lot to me. And I, I just really, you know, like I say, it was the work of many years. And um, it's because of that old horse, I wanted him to have a legacy. Mm, yeah, he does. It's a beautiful book. It's a very beautiful book. You know, it's a, it's learning through storytelling as well, which is one of my favorite ways to learn. I, I love 
love a good story. Me too. You've also written another two books, Relaxed and Forward and Barn Dance. Tell us a little about those. Um, those are both from the blog. And so when I finished my memoir, uh, a friend said, you need to publish Relaxed and Forward. You need to pull together your training blogs into one place. And I said to her, no, that's a foolish idea. It's already online. Why should I publish it? Foolish idea. And she kept pushing me. And so I gave in to her more or less to let her know she was wrong about that. But she was right about that. Yeah. And people consume in different ways. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And um, and so uh, both of those books, Relaxed and Forward, is about training. And by that, I mean these methods that we've been talking about. And uh, Barn Dance is a story of uh, some of the rescue horses I've worked with and some of the other animals that live here. And it talks about dogs and llamas. And then all of my opinions from being a woman of a certain age are in that book. And by I refer to myself as a gray mare. And, uh, nice. um, and, and so... Uh, it's more like that. And um, just this month, a fourth book is out. And it's a book of poetry. Beautiful. I know. I know. I never thought I would write poetry. I kind of consider it poetry for people who don't like poetry. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I challenged myself to write poetry. And so much of it has, you know, I it's everything we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Uh, in hindsight, I gained the value of so many things. Mm. And um, I love living here. I love um, working with horses and being around horses. And so there are some love poems to horses. There are uh, poems about working in the way we do uh, you know, around the barn. There are a couple of amusing poems that have goats involved. <laughs> They're always fun. Yeah, you know, the whole goat thing can't, it, it kind of does take the highbrow edge of poetry right down. Right <laughs> yeah. <on> the goat. <laughs> They're so much fun. It'd have to be fun. Everything to do with goats is fun. I consider goats to be kind of an antidote for uh, type A thinking. Yes, just think, when you think I, you've, you've got something sorted, they just come up with those little horns oh, yeah. and their little head and they just nuzzle your leg and go, want to play? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think every dressage barn should have a couple of goats just to keep people um, <laughs> relaxed. <laughs> yeah, from taking themselves a little too seriously. Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> and um, you do clinics all around the world and workshops all around the world, don't you? I do now. I'm so excited. It's because of technology and this little blog. But yeah, I was in, um, I got to come to Australia last March. I had such a great time in Australia. Wonderful. Whereabouts did you go to in Australia? Um, there was a clinic in Adelaide and Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane. And by that, of course, I mean way outside 
you know yeah, yeah. in the horse country part so, yeah those are the airports i flew in and out of yeah well, i just i had the best time you people have um kangaroos we do we do i know and koalas i know and i and you like to tease people about their accents <laughs> It's that's one of our calming strategies in Australia is to take the mickey out of people in some way, shape or form. And if we don't know what else to do and if we can't take the mickey out of them, we talk about the weather. So they're the two Australians. <laughs> I really think hard about the Australian way and our calming strategies as humans. That would be what we do. You know, at, at one of the clinics, it's it's the very last day of the clinic and it's late in the day and we're kind of wrapping up and everybody's standing around me trying to get me to pronounce. And now I'm I'm barely going to be able to pronounce it now because I'm saying it, but to pronounce Australia correctly. Oh, that's not And bad. so they all yell it and I yell it back and they all yell <laughs> it again. And we like shout it back and forth 10 or 15 times. It goes on forever. And I'm just laughing my head off and thinking to myself, where else in the world would somebody send off a clinician that way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I explain it to my family. I have three stepchildren and the elder ones were born in England and my partner was born in England. And um, they were often, often around the dinner table have discussions about um, language. And they're like, well, the English wrote the language. I said, yes, and the Australians ruined it. And we have our way. <laughs> and this is just how it is. We say yogurt. We don't say yogurt. And we have these hilarious <laughs> conversations about the language. And I said, whenever you, and we have woofers come through from all over the world working because I grow organic food here as well. And they say, you know, you need to correct me on my English. I said, I look to them for correction because I'm Australian. <laughs> We're not correct in the way we use the English language. We have our own way and it's not correct. So it's, it's and Australian. It's the most. Yeah, it's the most fun. And this year I also uh, got to go to Scotland and England. So I can just say the language that I understand the least is my birth tongue. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's too much fun. Yes, it's a lot of fun. And it's been wonderful fun today speaking with you, Anna. It's just such an absolute pleasure. So we can find all of the workshops and clinics and things you're doing and public speaking on your website. Yes. And that's um, AnnaBlakeBlog.com. Great. And I'll put all the links in the show notes as I usually yeah. do. And the blog has been going since 2010. So you can really immerse yourself in the world of Anna Blake and, um, <laughs> and really get into can, what it is you're you, about. You don't leave anything out, which is wonderful. Well, you know, it's kind of like uh, it used to be if you got in trouble in school, you'd write something on the blackboard a hundred times. Ah, yes. What I can tell you about writing as long as I have been writing, especially about training, is that, you know, I understand it deeper and um, I describe it in different ways. It's like, I think it's been the biggest benefit to me as a trainer to write because I've learned it a hundred times in the chalkboard, um, you know, a hundred different ways of saying it. And so, uh, yeah, look at the blog. And if you go back to 2010, you'll see that um, 
I didn't describe things as well then as I do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just the natural way. But that's what life's about, isn't it? If we don't learn and grow, then what on earth are we doing here? It's just like training horses. Yeah, yeah. And you do online lessons and phone consultations and things like that as well. So people from all over the world can connect with you, which is wonderful. Yes, yes. Yeah. And um, I'm... You know, I know that New Zealand is a long ways away, but I'll be in New Zealand in October. Oh, it's not that um, far. They're like our next door neighbors. Yeah, compared to coming here, I would think it was a short hop. It is. But I'm going to be at Equidays this year, and I'm really excited about that. I'm looking forward to seeing all my um, Kiwi friends there and, um, you know, looking forward. Hopefully, I'll be back in Australia in 2019. Wonderful. I hope so because I'm not done with those kangaroos yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll have had rain by then. We won't be in such bad <laughs> drought. So there'll be more. Uh, They'll start breeding again. There'll be oh plenty. Gosh. I hate to hear that. It's the thing, the depressing thing I hear everywhere that I travel um, is everyone says the weather isn't normal. Yeah. And, you know, I hate hearing that. I just... I just hate it. Yeah. Each drought we have uh, in Australia since I have been alive is the worst one yet. Yeah, so exactly. It's not, like, it's not like we have a kind of okay one. It's just they just slowly and slowly and sneak up, us, up on us and get worse and worse. But it's also wonderful in Australia um, to watch the community stand up and rally for the farmers and the amount of fundraising and, and care that's being given to them is extraordinary now. It took a while for them to get in front of people, but wonderful social media um, was able to bring them to the fore and there's a lot going on now to help our farmers out there. So um you know, from every bit of adversity, it, it really shows who we are and what we can do. And, and yeah, so there are good things that are coming out of it. I really love to hear time. that. I just, I love to hear that. It's, uh, being a farmer is a hard job. Yes. Uh, farmers in the U.S. are struggling too. And, uh, you know, it, I grew up on a farm. We won't survive without farmers. We no won't. one will survive without farmers. We won't. Everything we have comes out of the ground. Yep. Mm. Yep, I agree with you totally. Mm. Beautiful. Well, on that note, Anna, I'm going to say thank you so much once again for your time. It's uh, it's evening over there and it's morning over here, so I can let you know it's been a good night and uh, <laughs> and it's a good day so far. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this day over there in America. And thank you for your time today, but also thank you so much for everything that you do for horses. You're a person after my own heart and it just fills my heart with joy to know that there are people like you doing this and sharing this message and teaching these things every day. And it gives me so much hope for the world of horses. So thank you. Thank you. We are kindred spirits and um, thanks for having me and uh, have a good ride. Beautiful. Thank you. If you'd like to get in touch with Anna, then you can either follow the links in the show notes or you can go to the blog on my website where you can also see photos of Anna and her horses. Just go to comealongfortheride.com.au. I am on a mission to make the world a better place for horses. This is a big mission with an amazing message and it needs your help. 
If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and it's there waiting for you each week. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook. Share or comment on social media posts or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, just send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone who you know would love to listen, but isn't quite sure how. I would love it if you would get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you would like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine. So please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via social media or the website, just like Colleen Mack did. Massive thanks to Colleen Mack, who suggested I speak with Anna. I hope, Colleen, that you were able to deepen your understanding of her work. I have changed the way I am with my horses on a whole new level since speaking with Anna. So lots of love to you, Colleen, for coming along for the ride with me and making my life better, as well as my horses. And I'm sure everyone who's listened to this podcast will do the same. So well done, you. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.